and he's preparing them for what is about to happen. And uh, it, you can't blame the disciples for being a little bit distressed because Jesus, he'd been their protector, he had been their instructor, their comforter the entire time. They depended on him for everything. And then he's like, I'm leaving. And so they're like, what do you mean you're leaving? You're just going to leave us here alone? How could they possibly go on without him, let alone continue the work that Jesus had started on their own without him? And so in verses 5 to 7, Jesus, Jesus tells them, I'll, I'll kind of paraphrase essentially here. He says, you guys are upset because I told you that I'm leaving and you're, you're, just, you're focused on the fact that I said I'm leaving, but none of you stopping and asking me where I'm going. If you would actually listen, what I'm trying to tell you is that I'm going to the Father and it's actually a good thing that I'm going because if I go, then I can send you the helper. So it's actually to your advantage that I go away because if I don't go away, then I can't send him to you. Now, the helper is one of the names given to the Holy Spirit. Uh, John, in, in his gospel, refers to uh, the Holy Spirit by the name the helper, the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of truth. He is the third person of the Trinity. He's fully God. Father, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and yet God is one. One God and three persons. In the first half of the book of John, the Holy Spirit uh, is only mentioned in relation to his support of Jesus' ministry. So in John 3.34, we read that uh, the Holy Spirit, that Jesus had the, the Spirit in full measure. And so during Jesus' earthly ministry, the Holy Spirit remained on him. But now, Jesus was about to die on the cross and be raised, and then ascend into heaven. And so a new era of redemptive history was about to begin. After his ascension, Jesus would send the Holy Spirit to dwell in his disciples. So during Jesus' earthly ministry, the Spirit remained on him. And after Jesus' ascension, the Holy Spirit would, would dwell and remain in us, in Jesus' followers. And Jesus has commissioned the church to continue the ministry he started. And it's not just the 11 disciples here. That goes for all of us. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them. That's why Jesus tells the disciples in John 20, 21, after his uh, resurrection, he says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. You guys hear me quote that verse a lot of times during the benediction. I don't just say it because it has a nice ring to it. I say it because it's true. Like, we are actually tasked and charged as the church with continuing the ministry of Jesus that he started on earth by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the thing is, <clears throat> this is an impossible mission that we've been given. We've been called to turn people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And we can't do that. That's not something we have within our own power to do. And that is why Jesus' promise to send the helper in John 16 is so critical. Because it's actually the Holy Spirit that does this work through the church. So it's not us doing the work, it's the Spirit of God doing this work through the church. Jesus has given us the promise of the Holy Spirit to empower us to carry out the task of the Great Commission. And you can read about how all this begins to play out in Acts chapter 1 and 2. If you've been following along in our uh, Bible reading plan, then you read Acts chapter 1 and 2 over the weekend. Jesus told the disciples, 
right before he ascended into heaven in Acts 1, he said, told them to wait for the Holy Spirit, and he would empower them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, that's exactly what happens. The Holy Spirit falls on the church. He empowers them, and they begin to boldly proclaim the gospel and to call people to repent of sin and trust in Christ. And this is still our task and our calling today. We still have the same Holy Spirit within us that the disciples did in the book of Acts. Now the problem is, is that far too often we try to carry out the Great Commission apart from the Holy Spirit. In some Christian circles, the the person and the work of the Holy Spirit is just discounted. You could even argue that the Holy Spirit is ignored. He's not talked about in sermons. He's not addressed in prayer. He's not adored in worship. And this is a tragedy and a huge loss for the church when we neglect the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And in other churches, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit is distorted. He's treated like a genie in a bottle that does miracles on command. Or he is seen as a means to reaching an emotional or a spiritual high or experience. And I think maybe even more applicable to us here in this room is that there's still others who talk about the Holy Spirit and and we believe in Him and we love Him, but when it comes to carrying out the Great Commission, we function as if He doesn't exist. Instead of depending upon the Holy Spirit, we fall back on pragmatism. You know, American ingenuity is an amazing thing. We've accomplished a lot of great things throughout American history, but it cannot make disciples. American ingenuity cannot make disciples. It cannot turn people from the power of Satan to God. But we are so tempted to fall back on our intellect or on our attractiveness or on our cleverness. We think that God needs our help to carry out the Great Commission. And it really calls into question whether many of us actually believe Jesus when he says, it is to your advantage that I go away. Like, do we actually believe him when he says that? Be honest. Would you rather have Jesus here with you in the flesh so that you could hear him teach and watch him perform miracles? Or would you rather have what you have right now, which is the Holy Spirit living inside of you? Be honest. I mean, I think if some of us are honest, really honest, we got real, real, and we got some true serum, I think a lot of times we kind of wish that Jesus was here in the flesh. Because we don't actually believe Jesus when he says, it's to your advantage, I go away. It's because we're ignoring or we're distorting the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. We're not walking by the Spirit and we're missing out on one of God's most precious gifts to us. Jesus himself tells us that we have a better current arrangement now than the 12 disciples did when they walked with him. Like that's what God says in his word. So do we believe that? If you're a Christian, the Spirit of Christ dwells in you And he empowers you and me to do what he has called us to do. And so that's why it's important for us to understand the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Thankfully, Jesus provides us clarity about how the Spirit works through the church and how he guides the church here in John 16. Here's the sermon in a sentence right here. If I could summarize the message, it would be that the Holy Spirit continues the work of Jesus through the church and declares the words of Jesus to the church. 
The Holy Spirit continues the work of Jesus through the church, and He declares the words of Jesus to the church. And so, uh, there's really just two uh, points there in that sentence, and so we're going to walk through them one at a time. First, let's talk about how the Holy Spirit continues the work of Jesus through the church. What does that work? How does that work? Uh, the passage says, Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So that word convict means to, to prove wrong or to reveal what is hidden or to expose so another way to look at this is to, it, to read this would be the Spirit will prove the world wrong concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, during his ministry, Jesus did these things. In verse 4, Jesus told the disciples, he said, I, I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. In other words, you didn't need the Holy Spirit in you while I was here with you, but now that I'm leaving, now it's time for me to go and it's time for the Helper to come. And he is going to continue doing what I was doing. Just as I convicted the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, now the helper is going to do that role. Let's look at these one at a time. What does it mean that the Spirit convicts the world about sin? Jesus says he will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe me. Well, during his ministry, Jesus exposed sin in the world. He proved the world guilty of sin through his teaching and also through his sinlessness. Jesus said in John 7, 7, he said, The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. And the worst kind of sin is the sin of unbelief. Jesus is the Word made flesh, the visible image of the invisible God. To reject Jesus is to reject God. Refusing to trust in Jesus is a rejection of God's gracious gift of salvation. And so the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world concerning sin, chiefly this sin of unbelief. That's why Jesus says he convicts the world concerning sin because they do not believe me. And the Holy Spirit does this today as God's people declare God's word. Only the Holy Spirit can show somebody how horrific their sin is. Because our flesh tries to justify sin or to excuse sin or to cover up sin. This might seem uncomfortable to our flesh, this idea of being convicted of sin, but it's actually an act of God's grace because, you see, sin is a cancer. Sin will kill you. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. So sin must be exposed so that it can be expelled out of our life. It would, it would certainly not be fun to go to a doctor's appointment and to be told that you have cancer. But it's a lot better than having cancer and not knowing it or refusing to acknowledge it. The good news is that there's a cure for the cancer of sin. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is why the Spirit convicts us of sin, to turn us away from it. So if you're a Christian and you've, you have come to a place in your life where you detest sin and you see your desperate need for Jesus' blood to cover you, it's only by the grace of God that you've been able to see that. The Holy Spirit has graciously opened your eyes and convicted you of that sin. 
And if you don't think sin is a big deal, and if you're nonchalant about it, and you get uncomfortable about this, and you try to avoid it whenever somebody wants to talk about sin, or whenever you come to church and you try to avoid reading your Bible, you don't like that, it's because you have not yet been convicted of your sin, and it's actually a good thing. You need that, because there's a cancer living inside of you, and it's going to kill you. And it needs to be expelled, and it can be this morning by the blood of Jesus Christ. Have you come to see yourself as a great sinner in need of a great Savior? It's a question that we all need to answer this morning. Jesus also said uh, the Spirit convicts the world about righteousness. Look at verse 10. He says that he will convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And this sounds strange at first. Isn't righteousness a good thing? Why would, why would the Spirit convict us about righteousness? Well, righteousness can be a good thing if it's the righteousness of God. But there is another kind of righteousness, one that Jesus exposed, and it's called self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is trying to earn God's favor on your own merit. During his ministry, Jesus convicted the world concerning righteousness by exposing the emptiness and the evil of self-righteousness. He did this a lot in his interaction with the Pharisees who thought that they were more righteous than everybody else and who thought that they could earn their way into heaven by their good works and by their law-keeping. And Jesus came to show them, no, you can't. And Jesus exposed this self-righteousness in two ways. First, he perfectly fulfilled the law of God and walked out true righteousness. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, and his life was like a mirror that was held up to everyone else so that they could see themselves for what they truly were, sinners in need of a Savior. When you compare your life to Jesus' life, you quickly realize, I'm not righteous. I don't measure up. And Jesus also exposed this self-righteousness through his teaching. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus so in, in chapter 5, he says, if you want to fulfill the law and to obtain righteousness, he says, therefore you must be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, he holds up the perfect law of God before us so that we might come to see and to know that there's no way we could measure up. Because the point was never to, to measure up. The Apostle Paul says that God gave the law. The law is a good thing, but the law was given to show us our sinfulness, to expose our sin so that we could be driven to Jesus as our Savior. That's the purpose of the law. The law does not exist so that you can try to measure up to it and keep it. You've already failed. You've already sinned. The Holy Spirit is continuing today to do this work of convicting the world about righteousness. He does so by revealing our need for Jesus' true righteousness. The Spirit shows us that our righteousness isn't enough. He does so through the Word. Romans 3.10 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. And the Gospel, the good news, is that Jesus, the true righteous one, the one who actually was righteous, He died for the unrighteous so that we could be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it like this. It says that he who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. So there's this exchange that takes place. Jesus gives us his perfect spotless record. And in exchange, he takes our sin-stained guilty record upon himself. That's why he was nailed to a cross. Not for his own crimes. 
He didn't commit any crimes. He was nailed to the cross to take the punishment for your crimes if you've trusted in him. It's only by faith in Jesus that you can be saved. You need his righteousness. You need to be clothed in the robes of Jesus' righteousness when you stand before God on judgment day. No other robes will do. Jesus tells the parable of the wedding banquet and how all these people began to make excuses about why they couldn't come to uh, the king's feast. And and he's talking, this is what the kingdom of God is like. God has invited us into the wedding feast. But so many people are out there, oh, I'm too busy, I got... I got a new job, or I've got a wife, or I've got a farm to tend to. I'm too busy for you, God. But he also says there were some people who came to the wedding feast, and then it was discovered when the master came out that they didn't have the, wedding, the right wedding garments on. And so the master of the feast said, what are you doing in here? You don't have the wedding garments on. You're not clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And so he, he expels them from the wedding feast. He says, bind this man and throw him into outer darkness. He wasn't clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. That's the only way. We can stand before God on judgment day. You try to put on your own robes. You know what our righteousness is like, what Isaiah 64 says? It says all our righteousness is like filthy rags in comparison to God's righteousness. It's like putting on filthy, soiled rags and then going and standing before a holy God and going, Look at me! Am I not worthy? We're not worthy. Our righteous deeds cannot cover over our sin. Is this like, it's like trying to bribe God if we think, well, I'm going to do more, I'm going to do good works to make up for what I've done. We can't bribe God. We've already sinned and fallen short, so that means that we're guilty and someone's got to pay the, the fine for us. Someone's got to pay that debt. Jesus has paid that debt. Why would you try to do it on your own when Jesus has done it for you? To trust in your own righteousness to get to heaven instead of admitting your sinfulness and your need for a Savior is to trample on the blood of Christ, Scripture says. Because there's nothing more dishonoring to God than that, than to neglect His gift of grace in His Son. You You don't need to earn salvation. We can't. God gives it as a gift. But I'll tell you, it's only those who've been humbled and who've been convicted by the Spirit about their sin and their, and their true need for righteousness that can receive it. Only people who've been convicted can receive it. I pray right now, I'm praying right now this morning that the, that the Spirit will convict some of you sitting here. If you're not totally sure where you stand with God, I would encourage you, you, you call on God. God, convict me of my sin right now. That's a prayer that He will answer. I promise you. The Spirit convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness, and then Jesus says He convicts the world about judgment. Look at verse 11. He says, He will convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So the ruler of this world is, is uh, Satan. That's who Jesus is referring to there. And during his earthly ministry, Jesus decisively judged Satan, the ruler of this world. He demonstrated his authority over him by casting out demons, by healing the sick, by raising the dead. By resisting the devil's temptations. Satan wanted to destroy God's image bearers. That's what he wants to do. And he thought he he had succeeded in the Garden of Eden. He's been a murderer from the beginning, Jesus says. Doing all that he can to oppose God and to oppose God's image bearers. And when Jesus came, Satan did all he could to destroy the Son of God. 
He tempted Jesus to sin. He tried to lure Jesus away. And when that didn't work, in his hateful rage, Satan filled the heart of Judas and of the people of Jerusalem with murder, and they crucified Jesus. But Satan overplayed his hand. You see, Satan's act of murder was actually merely fulfilling God's word. You see, by his death, Jesus the righteous died for the unrighteous so that sinners could receive mercy. And then three days later, Jesus defeated death and he rose from the grave. So by his death and his resurrection, the ver- by his death, the very thing that the serpent was using to try to crush the Son of God, by his death and resurrection, the Son of God actually crushed the head of the serpents. God thwarted the schemes of the devil. The wrath of God towards sinners was satisfied on the cross so that guilty sinners could be reconciled and restored. And so now, those of us who are redeemed can bear godly fruit as we're conformed into the image of our Creator as we were always intended to do, thus bringing glory to God, completely upending all of Satan's schemes and all of Satan's plans. So the ruler of this world has been judged. And it's just a matter of time for Satan. And now a judgment day is coming when Satan and all who join him in opposing Jesus will be cast into the lake of fire forever. The Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning this judgment. The world does not think that a judgment day is coming. Does not want a judgment day to come. Romans chapter 1 says that people suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. 2 Corinthians 4 says the God of this world has blinded the hearts and minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the gospel. We're in a real spiritual war with real spiritual forces, with a real enemy who hates people, and he wants to do all he can to destroy them. And he does it by trying to keep them from hearing the gospel because it is only the Holy Spirit that can convict people concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And the Holy Spirit does that as God's people proclaim God's word. So if you are not a Christian, then I pray that the Holy Spirit convicts you this morning about your sin and your need for righteousness and the coming judgment because it's a gracious conviction meant you to turn you away from the path to destruction and into the safe, loving arms of Jesus Christ who died for you. Now Christians... Church, we cannot just sit back passively and expect the Holy Spirit to do this work outside of us. Like, well, the Holy Spirit's got it, so we're good. We can just coast. Now, Jesus said in verse 7, he said to the disciples, he said, the helper will come to you. The helper will come to you, church. So the Holy Spirit does this work of convicting through the works and the witness of the church. Let me break that down a little bit more in detail. Through the works of the church. So, Christians bearing the fruit of righteousness are walking examples of righteousness and consequently a walking rebuke to an unbelieving world, much like Jesus was. So merely by abiding in Jesus and walking in accordance with with His commands, our lives act like a mirror that expose the unrighteousness of the world around us. So when you forgive someone who's harmed you even though they don't deserve it, or when you love your enemy, or when you refuse to engage in unethical practices at the workplace like other people are doing, it's the Holy Spirit works through that to convict others of sin because you're walking in righteousness. Uh, 
a, God used uh, this in my life to draw me to him at the age of 24. Many of you don't know, I didn't become a follower of Christ until I was 24 years old. I know I look like I'm 25, I'm actually 34. Um, so, he's like, man, how long has this dude been a Christian? He's a pastor in the church. Um, there's a, a man named Josh uh, who began coming into, I, you know, I built a friendship with him. He was coming into the store that I worked at, and, and I had claimed to be a Christian, but my life didn't bear any fruit. Uh, my life didn't reflect it. And Josh, on the other hand, he would come in, and he was always so full of joy. And he loved to talk about Jesus. And he genuinely loved other people more than himself. And he lived a holy life. And I knew that he had something that I didn't. I knew that I didn't know God like he did. And I began to want to know God the way that he did. I was like, I want whatever he has. God used Josh to convict me of my need for righteousness. Do you realize that God wants to work through you in the same way, believer? The question is, are you living in a way where he can? If your life is contrary to the gospel or if you're living just like the world, how will the people in your life be pointed to Christ? And it's not by our own strength that we live a life pleasing to God. It's by yielding to the leading of the Holy Spirit. That simply means listening to God in his word and then trusting and obeying him. As you do that, the Spirit of God will work in and through you. It's not that complicated. And God will use it. But it's not just our works that God works through, that the Spirit works through to convict the world. It's also our witness. Our godly lives alone cannot show someone how to be saved. We must tell them how to be saved. The gospel is news. You share news. But this isn't just any news. The gospel, Romans 1.16 says, is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is news that has power in and of itself. As we share the gospel, it's the Holy Spirit that gives efficacious power to our words. Y'all know what that word efficacious means? It's a big word. Efficacious means it makes our, the words effective. It makes it do something. My words, if I just get up here and give you my opinions, my words have no power at all. My words are powerless. God's word has power. And as we proclaim it, the Spirit of God makes it efficacious. Now you've got a new vocab word you can use. Our intellect and our clever speech cannot accomplish anything. Jesus says in John 6, 63, the flesh profits nothing. It's the Spirit who gives life. And this is why it makes no sense to me that the church so often depends on gimmicks, or attractions, or intellect to try to persuade people. It makes no sense. We can't do it. There's absolutely nothing that we can do in our flesh to make a dent in the life of an unsaved person. Nothing. I don't care how great of a communicator you are. I don't care how much cool coffee shops your church has inside of it. I don't care what you do. You can't make a dent in the life of a lost person. It's as we preach the Word of God that people are changed. In, in fact, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 1.17, we can actually do the opposite. If we start trying to help God, in 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul says, I don't preach the gospel with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Perhaps the reason we see so little of the results we desire in the church today is because we're emptying the gospel of its power by trying to make 
the message more palatable and more attractive. We're actually completely emptying it of any power. Guys, the gospel is plenty attractive and powerful and glorious already. We just need to believe that and then preach it. And in, with God's help, we will. Now, this ought to be very encouraging for you as you consider your unsaved friends and family, by the way. No, you may not be very impressive. And guess what? Neither am I. I'm a hot mess. But praise God, He uses our feeble efforts to do miraculous things. I'm going to tell you a really neat story of something that happened a couple weeks ago. I went into the coffee shop, and as soon and I knew beforehand, I'd been praying that God would give me an opportunity to talk to somebody. And it was a few days before Easter, and I had some of our Easter invites. And I, as soon as I walked in, there was a table of six people, uh, which was and immediately two things happened simultaneously. Uh, the first thing uh, that happened was I said, I definitely don't want to go talk to those people. And the second thing that happened was the Holy Spirit told me, you go talk to those people. And so immediately there was this conflict going on inside of me, and all of a sudden a war started, a tug of war between me and the Holy Spirit. So I sit down. I tried to ignore it. I was like, no, no, because they, they just, I don't know, they just didn't look like the kind of people that really wanted anybody to interrupt them uh, and to interrupt their nice coffee and breakfast. And so I sat down, tried to ignore it, and then I started overhearing them talk about Easter. And I was like, oh, come on, Lord. They started talking. They talked, what are you doing for Easter? And I'm like, I've got these Easter invites. And then I hear one of them say to the other one, hey, what does Easter mean to you? I was like, oh, come on, Lord. <laughs> I got my pastor sitting here. And, and then get this, the person answers, person answers and goes, well, the first thing I think about is I think about uh, Easter eggs and Easter bunnies. I said, okay. So I got up, and I'm not, I'm not joking, you guys. This is, I, I, was, I was intimidated because this was a full restaurant. There's a ton of people all around. We were in close proximity, and I get up, and I go to them, and I, I'm not joking. I was literally trembling. Like my, I could feel my voice kind of shaking, my hand trembling, because I knew I was walking up, and I knew there was a good chance I was going to get rejected. And so we ended up chatting a little bit. I invited them to church. They were, I mean, they were kind of like polite, but kind of like, yeah, okay, thanks, please leave us alone. Sat down, and I was like, okay, whew. I just prayed. I was like, God, please use my feeble efforts. And I forgot to tell you, when, when I had first walked in, there was one man in particular that I had been drawn to at that table that I had compassion on uh, that first drew me to that table. One guy, I didn't know why, but I just... We had made eye contact, and there was something about him, and I'd been drawn to him. And So I sat down. About 10 minutes later, they all left. About two minutes after they all leave, the man that I'd initially been drawn to comes back into the shop, and he walks right up to me, to my table, and he says, hey, can I talk to you? And I said, okay. And I said, sure, sit down. And so he sat down, and um, we began to talk. And we began to get into a gospel conversation. He asked me uh, about our church, and he began to t explain to me that he had been going to church for a while, and it stopped going, and he had been reading the Bible, and he had lots of questions, and that he didn't really know or understand how to apply God's Word to his life. And we ended up having an amazing gospel conversation, and the long and short of it is, is that he agreed, and we want, that he wanted to start meeting up weekly to start reading through the Bible together. And so we've begun doing that. And so now we're getting to meet together, and God is, is definitely working in his life, and God is definitely drawing him. And guys, I was just blown away by that whole experience, because when I tell you I was literally trembling, I meant I was literally trembling. Guys, that is the power of God. It's treasure in a weak jar of clay. God used my trembling voice to convict a man about sin and righteousness and judgment, and he will use yours too if you'll trust and obey him. This is why Jesus closed the Great Commission with, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. 
Of course we can't do it in our strength. We often feel like, you know, I don't want to intrude on others or make someone feel uncomfortable, but that's what light does with darkness. Light intrudes on darkness. And the critical factor is not your ability to persuade, but the presence of God in you and with you. So don't listen to your fear. Obey the Holy Spirit and do it every time, and I promise you, you will never regret obeying God. The result every single time is joy. Here's a couple of just practical applications I'll give you um, in light of all this. First of all, pray for those you share the gospel with. Ask God to give you the words to say and then ask God to give them ears to hear. Evangelism is trusting God to do a miracle every time that we share, so we need to pray. We need to pray. Secondly, be clear when you share the gospel about sin, about the need for righteousness, and about coming judgment. This is how the Holy Spirit will convict them concerning these things. Apologetics can be a helpful thing, but don't get caught up on a rabbit trail arguing about how Noah fit all those animals on the ark. I found that those things are often just ways that people try to take the searching light of the conviction of the Spirit off of them and to change the subject. Speak to their conscience and keep bringing it back to the gospel. I think that oftentimes evangelism is ineffective because Christians avoid the uncomfortable topics of sin and judgment and righteousness in Christ alone. But this is precisely how the Holy Spirit convicts sinners and shows them their need for the gospel. If they don't know their need for the gospel, they're not going to receive it. They're not going to see it as glorious. They're not going to see it as good news. It's the reality of sin and coming judgment that makes the gospel good news. Third thing I'd encourage you to do is remember in evangelism that faithfulness, remember faithfulness over fruitfulness in evangelism. Faithfulness over fruitfulness. Because it is the spirit that convicts concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, that means that how somebody responds is in God's hands, not ours. Okay? The only way to fail at evangelism is to not do it. It's the only way. Now, I, um, I originally intended to spend much more time um, on the second point that I want to run through real quick here, but there was just too much meat in verses 8 to 11. So I'm going to be brief here with verses 12 to 15, uh, but I, don't, I do think it's important that we cover it. So we talked about how the Spirit of God uh, continues the work of Jesus through the church, but Jesus also teaches here that the Spirit of God declares the words of Jesus to the church. Uh, look at with me at verses 13 to 15. Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So, to help us do the works of Jesus... The Holy Spirit also declares, declares to us the words of Jesus to guide us. And Jesus told the disciples that the Holy Spirit would declare to them the things that were to come. And that the Spirit would, he said, he, the Spirit would take what is mine, in other words, my words, and declare them to you. And that's exactly what happened. The Holy Spirit glorified Jesus in his words by declaring them to the, to the disciples so that they could record them. And that's where we get the New Testament. So this, this 
passage right here is most immediately applicable to the disciples. What Jesus is telling them is that, yes, I'm leaving, but the Holy Spirit's going to come, and he's going to show you the things that are come. He's going to give you my words so that you can then, inspired by the Holy Spirit, write them down so that they will be there for the instruction of the church for ages to come. That's where we get the New Testament. 2 Peter 1.21 says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's where we get the Bible. Scripture is not the mere words of men. It's the word of God recorded by men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this means that we can have confidence that the Bible is God's word because it was the Holy Spirit that revealed these things to the disciples. And the Spirit leads us into truth, not into error. The Spirit declares the words of Jesus just as Jesus said he declared the words of the Father. Here's kind of a helpful way to summarize it uh, as we think about how this applies to us. The Holy Spirit guides the church and glorifies the Son through the Word of God. The Holy Spirit guides the church and glorifies the Son through the Word of God. So because the Holy Spirit's role is to glorify Jesus, and because the Bible is the words of Jesus, then that means, listen, that the Holy Spirit will never contradict the Bible. Okay, I'm going to say that again because it's really important. Because the Holy Spirit's role is to glorify or to make much of Jesus, and because the Bible is the words of Jesus, the Holy Spirit will never contradict the Bible. I've heard people say often something along the lines of, well, I know that God's Word says this, but I follow the Spirit. No, you follow a Spirit, but not the Holy Spirit. It's an unclean Spirit. Likewise, because the Bible is the words of Jesus, that means that the Son of God does not contradict the Word of God. Some people try to pit Jesus against the Bible. I heard someone doing this just the other day. Well, I pay, I pay attention to the red letters, to what Jesus said. I don't really like Paul that much. You don't have that option. It's all the Word of God. You either take it all or you leave it all. But if you try to mix and match, then you're just making a God in your own image. Here's the deal. What you're really doing when you do that is you're just avoiding the convicting light of the Holy Spirit because it's through the Word that the Spirit convicts us of sin and turns us to Christ. And so people will come up with all sorts of ways to wriggle out of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, including trying to change the meaning of this book or trying to take some of it and leave some of it, trying to twist it. All of that is just fueled by the deception of the evil one. The Holy Spirit guides us into truth, and that truth is always rooted in the Bible. So because of this, the church of God needs to be dedicated to the Word of God. It's why one of our values is the Bible. It's why we preach from the Bible. It's why the songs that we sing are rooted in the Bible. It's why when we meet for discipleship, we study the Bible. It's why our small groups are centered around studying the Bible. It's because God's Word is perfect and true. And we need it to guide us. The Bible is God's self-revelation. So as we read the scriptures, the Holy Spirit guides us with God's wisdom. He instructs us with God's commands. He corrects us with truth. And He encourages us with God's 
promises. It's a sure and steady anchor that we can hold fast to that's never going to change, that's never going to shift. And it is working through the Word that the Spirit enables us to carry out the Great Commission. The Spirit of God brings conviction of sin and conveys the gospel as the church proclaims the Word of God. So this morning we've learned that the Holy Spirit empowers the church to continue the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit guides the church by declaring the words of Jesus. I'm going to close with a time of prayer and then we're going to enter into a time of Q&A. Um, and so we'll try to take uh, a few questions. Hopefully Thomas has got those. Um, and so uh, we'll take as many of them as we can. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that even in this moment right now, Holy Spirit, that if there's anyone in here that has not come under the conviction of their sin and seen their need for Jesus' righteousness and, and become aware of and convinced of a coming judgment day that you would do that work in them right now and that they would run to Jesus and trust in you, Jesus, and be saved. God, I pray that you would open up eyes and be gracious. And I pray that you would encourage your people, your church this morning, God, to walk by the power of the Spirit, to trust you, Holy Spirit, to do the work of the Great Commission through us. Help us, God, to trust that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and that we would be bold to declare it and trust that as we do, that you will give the growth. And I pray that you would guide us as your people, Lord. Give us a love for your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that this week as we read your word that you would instruct us and encourage us and strengthen us and guide us as your people and that you'd conform us into the image of Jesus. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.